I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and let's politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Dean, who's your favorite saint? Just if you, had to, if you had to name one saint that was your favorite one, and it can't be Jesus, and it can't be any of the disciples, it has to be a real... Who's your favorite medieval saint, I guess, is the revision of my question that I'm asking you right now. <laughs> uh, that is such a tough one. There's so many to choose from, and probably... No, it's not tough, Dean. You have to, you, there's, one right, well, there's one right answer to this. Fine, all right. It's St. Francis, um, but don't tell the Dominicans I said that. <laughs> great cool i'm glad you i'm glad you finally got to that answer that that one's my favorite too um and it just so happens that we're gonna do a whole episode right now about saint francis but with an interesting twist and uh different perspective than maybe we've done in the past mm-hmm. lucky me that i chose right <laughs> thank god <laughs> um the whole point of our podcast is to look into the weird corners of christianity and leftist politics you know that already because you've made it this far uh, but Christians talking about leftist stuff is really easy to come by for for the most part, right? Liberation theology, liberal theology, they all more or less reflect on how Christians might interpret social aspects of their faith into contemporary political frameworks. And we love that kind of stuff on this podcast. It's the most fun thing for us in particular. But it's also interesting to see sometimes the way uh, that it can go in the other direction, So occasionally you'll find really catalyzing ideas and figures within Christianity that people on the left who are not religious or maybe, you know, not explicitly religious, uh, find interesting enough to pick up and use in their own work. And uh, one of those characters is St. Francis of Assisi. He's one of those he's one of those folks that the leftist philosophers and theorists have often taken a special interest in. We did an episode on St. Francis and Karl Kotsky a while back, um, and you might remember that Karl Kotsky thought that St. Francis was a communist, and I think it's a compelling case. <laughs> um, but in case you've never heard of uh, Francis at all, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about him. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi is a popular saint within Christianity. Francis died in 1226 when he was like you know, 44-ish. I don't think we know exactly when he was born uh, because of the medieval time period. (laughs) But 44-ish is the consensus, I think. Uh, Francis is remembered as a mystical-type figure and traveling preacher. However, he also took up vows of poverty and lived among the poor, sort of like a mendicant sort of, I don't know, preacher. Uh, A person who had a lot of interesting uh, 
a lot of interesting feelings about wealth and poverty, uh, especially given that he is from sort of a wealthy background and he, he forsakes it all to become, um, you know, um, more in line with his uh, other earthly siblings. Francis is also really closely associated with a type of like environmental theology and like also a type of mysticism, I think, that considers humans as like siblings to creation rather than the dominators of it. Um, Francis, he's he's a cool guy. I think that we've talked about him before in the podcast, and I'm excited to get into him again. Yeah, he is a cool guy. Uh, there are also tons of very funny stories about Francis and the early Franciscans as well. Francis is interesting because you know we'll we'll talk maybe more about the the sort of proto socialist parts of him and kind of how he operates in that way. But he he's also like a weird character, right, Francis? He's responsible for the tradition of the nativity because he got a bunch of live animals together to like stage a scene that would help people <laughs> try to envision like Jesus's birth. He uh, reportedly had the stigmata bleeding from his hands and feet. And there's like a funny bit about that where he appears to his followers afterwards. And there's this sort of like bizarre, um, almost like dangerously close to parody, but more appropriately called imitation of like Jesus Christ where they're all like, oh my gosh, we thought you were dead. Um, and, uh, you know, he's sort of resurrected. So there, there's a lot of drama to St. Francis in an interesting way, like a theatrical kind of uh, piece of him. So it's like a, a really great sort of series of little vignettes like that. And I think what you get out of that is an image of this larger than life character who is also super like normal, you know, these two things at the same time. And as a result, he catalyzes a lot of imagery, a lot of imagination, and especially in Italy, of course, because he's an Italian saint. And Italy is also a place with lots of left-wing traditions. So all that to say, we'll find lots of resonance with it. But uh, St. Francis is a great guy to read about, a great saint you can learn a lot of fun stories about to, uh, I don't know, tell at your weird Christian summer camp this, this summer. I do love that maybe Francis is the reason that we do have the live nativity. That's really great. <laughs> like the, the bane of youth group kids everywhere. <laughs> exactly. Uh, who have to stand like outside their church in the cold with a, with like a sheep and a horse or whatever. That's right. You can blame St. <laughs> <Saint> Francis. <laughs> I'm blaming him. Yeah. Well, we can talk more about who Francis was like in a little bit. Um, lots of great stories. Lots of interesting anecdotes. Uh, but you can definitely see some <laughs> some themes emerging from his life that might be interesting to people on the left. Poverty and uh, ecology uh, and lots of communist feelings for sure, right? I think that's a big one. So in this episode, we're going to do an extremely haphazard of the history of St. Francis from the perspective of, of like leftist and postmodern political theory. I don't think anyone's ever done that before. <laughs> uh, but what we've done is compile some places where where... Marxist, post-Marxist, post-modern, political philosophy kinds of people are talking about St. Francis and like what they are using his appearance for. <laughs> Some of them, I think, are more interesting than others, um, but it is really fascinating the way that this one, this one saint... I mean, you got to imagine that uh, amongst this particular crowd of people, Christian saints, not the most popular, but... <laughs> Uh, Francis does make a constant appearance kind of in, in these uh, weird political philosophy uh, texts. And I don't know. It's interesting, an interesting thing. So uh, we're going to read through some of them and talk about what they mean and like the rhetorical you know function that Francis has in these works. And then uh, at the end, we're going to kind of just see <laughs> what the big themes are, what can we kind of uh, draw from this conversation. Um, 
I think, though, Dean, we have to start with uh, with the uh, the biggest leftist of them all, <laughs> the most leftist of them, um, and that's Lenin. So, Dean, I found this interesting quote that I think is probably apocryphal, um, <laughs> but it's hard to tell. Uh, so this is this is a <laughs> it's this I have to tell the story of how I found the quote because it's part of why the quote was so good. So I was just like randomly kind of searching for different uh, different sort of Marxist types who talk about St. Francis. And of course, like one of my Google searches was St. Francis of Assisi and Lenin. Because I just like, I, I thought to myself, there's no way this is possible, but there is a quote from Lenin about St. Francis, but it might be a fake quote. But the, the place that I found it was on <laughs> DesiringGod.com. That's right. John Piper <laughs> is bringing the good news of Lenin and St. Francis to the masses. And I'm so excited about it. <laughs> All right. So on John Piper's blog, he's talking about, <laughs> he's talking about Francis. It's like a, it, it's a blog that's like, I don't know, has some kind of like uh, significance in the calendar. So he's talking about, he's talking about Francis. The Lenin connection is very bizarre. So, uh, John Piper kind of brings this quote up from Lenin to kind of prove a point about something, but it's not quite clear exactly what it is. So John Piper... Typical uh, Piperism, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Completely incoherent. Um, So by way of John Piper, Lenin says this, (laughs) maybe, about Francis. I made a mistake. Without doubt, an oppressed multitude had to be liberated. But our method only provoked further oppression... And atrocious massacres. <laughs> a thing Lenin definitely, li- for sure, did say. Lenin is always out there, kind of like letting it all loose. <laughs> my, he's Lenin goes on to say, Lenin in quotes <laughs> goes on to say, my living nightmare is to find myself lost in an ocean red with the blood of innumerable victims. It's too late now to alter the past, but what was needed to save Russia were ten Francis of Assisi's. That's all. So. <laughs> That's all it would take. You know, some people, if you talk to conservatives enough, um, I know that there are people within my <laughs> the, the weird orbit of my life who are like, you know, the, what we need to do to straighten out the, the Middle East or whatever whatever <laughs> political situation in the world is like 10 Marines in like a week's time. But here's <laughs> Lenin. You just need 10, cent, 10, 10 Francis of the CCs. Okay, so we've been joking this is probably a fake quote. And I think it is a fake quote. Um, I was kind of digging around to see if I could figure out where it comes from. And the source is extremely dubious. So there is a... This quote comes from a book called The Catholic Boy, which was published in 1938. Incredible, by Um, the way. What a title. I know. That's going to be the title of my memoir also. I hope people don't find the other one when they're Googling for it. So it's... The yeah, yeah, I know, right? The Catholic boy. Um, so the book is written, but it, that that quote comes from a story in the book um, from a from a Hungarian priest who supposedly, allegedly, was a former classmate and confidant of Lenin, um, who you know he he knew, I guess. So um, I don't think that's probably it's like this is a second hand source right it's no it's not it's even like a third hand source (laughs) Uh, so i don't think it's probably true but it is interesting um people uh, especially christians love to uh try to like rehabilitate the world's like who i guess people who they perceive as the world's worst villains 
and give them like a, a deathbed confession moment. And that is very <laughs> much this kind of situation where, you know, uh, <laughs> I know I remember growing up in the church and hearing like that, that Darwin really regretted everything and he accepted Jesus on his deathbed or whatever, yeah, which yeah. is not true either. <laughs> but Christians, they love to do this kind of thing. And uh, we're seeing it right here. Yeah, it's great. Uh, John Piper, as we've noted a long time ago on the show, also has some extremely funny things to say about communism in general. He, um, he, there was some question somewhere in his blog where someone asked, like, what would you do if you lived in a communist society? And he says something to the effect of, like, uh, I wouldn't be too bothered by it. I would just preach the gospel. So there you have it. Um, don't worry about it, says John Piper, an extremely weird Calvinist pastor. Um, <laughs> all right. Great attitude. Great dude. So John Piper, he's out there. He's suddenly a Calvinist. He's also a fan of St. Francis of Assisi, weirdly or not, weirdly enough. Um, but let's not talk about Calvinists who like uh, St. Francis. Let's talk about some other folks. And we mentioned a long time ago, we did this episode on Karl Kautsky. And I think it's worth returning to at least uh, the basic bit of that um, that point. Because it kind of gives us a, a sense of how Kautsky gets, or how Francis gets picked up in some early Marxist tradition. And we'll see Francis get used in even weirder ways in postmodern philosophy later on. But uh, I think it's it's kind of like a, a lost essay or something um, that Kautsky has on Francis that, that's really fascinating. So he has this neat little piece called St. Francis of Assisi, Revisionist of Medieval Communism. Very funny title. Uh, he also, uh, Francis also comes up in Kautsky's Forerunners of Modern Socialism, which has a lot to say about uh, Christianity. Oh, I guess I should say, too, if you don't know who Karl Kautsky is or was, basically, you had Marx, you had Engels, and then Kautsky was, like, supposed to be the next generation of Marxist thought. He was very close to Engels in particular, and uh, he kind of, I don't know, he was, like, an authoritative voice in early Marxism. And then during the uh, First World War, he famously um, <laughs> had some bad takes <laughs> and uh, uh, also became more of a reformist than a revolutionary over time. So sort of fell out of favor with some other Marxists like Lenin, but also Rosa Luxemburg. And anyway, um, lots to say about Kautsky, but he did have a lot of interesting analysis, whether you like him or not. And uh, he's one of the few early Marxists who's really applying Marx's historical method to um, Western European history. So anyway, here's how he does it with Francis. He says, in around 1207, Francis began to preach communism. He renounced his worldly possessions and assembled young men around him who would live in voluntary poverty, but not without labor, according to the early Christian ideal. They would help the workers in their labor and therefore share their meals and their lodgings. They could not accept money in any circumstance. They were only permitted to beg if they could not do anything else to earn a living. Um, this is actually a really instructive passage because also in the Marxist tradition, and Kautsky points this out, there is a recognition that in the Bible there's what they sometimes call a primitive communism or a communism of consumption. So, you know, in Acts 2 and 4, we get this vision of the Christian community that people sell everything they have and everything is distributed according to people's needs. 
which is a great sort of system, but you run into a problem when you need more stuff to distribute, right? You can only really sell your stuff once. <laughs> you need to uh, find a way to get more stuff because you're going to keep on having needs. And so the, the Marxist critique of that early Christian communism is that you can't really reproduce it very long. You know, it's a lofty goal. There's a sort of seed of a radical idea in it, but it's not sustainable. And what Kautsky is pointing out with Francis is that what you get in Francis is, first of all, that seed, right? There is this sort of commitment to poverty, a voluntary poverty, but there's also this additional requirement for labor, right? That you have to be able to labor and begging, sure, you should do it, but you really need to, to work and to work alongside other workers. And it's really an interesting, interesting point because this is also where capitalism is starting to kind of emerge. It's pretty early yet, but it's going to emerge, uh, especially in Italy. And it's cool because Kautsky identifies the Franciscan movement as a sort of proto-proletarian movement, like something that understands what's at stake in both working and and sort of the choice to throw in with the working class. And Francis is also famously a class trader, right? He was a noble person with lots of money and quit all that and left all of that and also um, encouraged a lot of other noble people to become class traders as well. So uh, all that to say, the first person on the table here, Karl Kautsky, giving us this radical vision of Francis as a, a class trader, a proto-proletarian. I think it's a cool vision that... Uh, you know, people on the left and Christians probably aren't really uh, prone to thinking about when it comes to Francis. Yeah, for sure. I think that's really interesting. And you can start to see why people on the left are interested in the first place in Francis. You know, uh, it does leave out <laughs> the importance of Christian theology in coming to those conclusions. But uh, that's fine. <laughs> well, not the most important thing. We can skip over that, I guess. The communists, they don't care why he's doing it. They just care that he's, he is doing it. Okay. Good stuff. Um, so that's Kotsky, but well, how about something different? Um, I think this one's interesting. So W.E.B. Du Bois actually has this entire speech he gave to a high school once in 1906 about Francis. And I think it's actually, so I read the whole thing. Dean turned me on to it, and uh, I read this like uh, this like photocopied paper of, of it, <laughs> and it's really fascinating. I like it a lot. It's just, like, I mean, it's just, it's like, it's a speech that you would definitely give to high schoolers, but it's cool because it's uh, it's trying to situate poverty and like and, and the renunciation of wealth and why that's important for Francis and like what it might mean for us. Um, du Bois, a smart guy for sure, um, and this is uh, I think uh, some of his like rhetoric at at it's strongest. It's really good. So uh, W. E. B. Du Bois says this. The lesson of St. Francis of Assisi is not the renunciation of wealth and the deification of poverty. It is, on the contrary, simply this great truth. The work of the world is to satisfy the world's wants. Now, the world wants material wealth, such as good food and clothing and shelter. But this is not all, nor even the greater part of its need. It wants human service and human sympathy. It wants knowledge and inspiration. It wants hope, truth, and beauty, and so great are these greater wants that often their satisfaction demands in some, St. Francis of Assisi, an utter renunciation of much of the material good of the world, that its spiritual starvation may be satisfied. Um, an interesting kind of balance here and, and reframing of Francis, I, I don't think it's probably quite right to say that the, the lesson of St. Francis is not the renunciation of wealth and the deification of poverty, because I think that's there for sure. 
the the deification of poverty maybe not in exactly those words but i think is actually a pretty big part of like saint francis's thought but um i can be persuaded otherwise i guess what i like about this though is that uh, it is like instructive wisdom about saint francis for high schoolers that does um (laughs) that gets around like the asceticism of it all and kind of gives you something good right you know the problem isn't that uh that you that you have to satisfy your wants that's just like part of life but it's like you know doing it in the right way uh not just sort of consumption for the sake of consumption but human service and human sympathy i I feel like that's cool i'm into that yeah i mean one thing i like about it is pulling out uh the assumption that that's also a human need um sympathy and service that is a, a neat thing that you don't always get in uh especially marxist literature i mean du bois he becomes a Marxist, but he has kind of a moment of being just like a, a cool progressive guy. Um, but he always has this way of, of words. And I think one thing you get with Du Bois is this attention to human suffering, uh, in a, a really well-rounded kind of way that people need food, clothing, and shelter, but they also need something sort of deeper, right? That there's a, a spiritual starvation. And that is the kind of thing that Francis is trying to attend to that, uh, he is a reformer of the church, you know, um, in Francis's biography, basically the, the, the way the story is told is Francis goes to this chapel. He has this mystical vision where, um, Jesus tells him to rebuild, uh, the church, which lies in ruins. And the way he's going to do that is through voluntary poverty. So you do get this, um, this renunciation of wealth, but it's with this kind of, you know, evangelistic, aim to 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 recharge the church in some way or other but also to meet the demands of the people who are poor so francis would go around and just hang out with the poor all the time um especially before he became a guy who founded an order he was trying to sort of see you know what are those basic human needs and and they are more than material and i think that's something that is maybe like hard to say for people on the left um because you you know you get really yucky christian ways of papering over material way uh, material needs that way right like i've heard all kinds of evangelicals for example uh when they talk about let's say i don't know the importance of like international aid or solidarity aid or whatever people will be like that's great but are they bringing them the gospel because at the end of the day like if they get food and they still go to hell isn't that bad like (laughs) i've heard christians say that it's an extremely weird opinion to have um and uh you know that's obviously not what du bois is saying and not what saint francis is saying either and i think there's something about like trying to figure out where how do you plot the the spiritual need of people alongside those material needs that Du Bois is uniquely kind of calling our attention to. That's a, a good thing as well, maybe to uh, to find in in Saint Francis. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, okay, so far we have two things out on the table. We've got Kotsky's sort of like really straightforward reading that Francis is a communist and that's his whole thing, um, which is fine and good. And uh, you know, it's leaving out the theological and maybe ethical element to Francis's thought. And then we got Du Bois, who's um, saying something altogether different about maybe the ethical <laughs> the ethical uh, angles of his thought. <laughs> but in both of these, Francis is definitely that re- Reformation type of character in the church, right? He's somebody who's bringing a whole different type of message to uh, to what Christianity is about and like what Christian people should be doing in the world and how we should be thinking about it. Yeah, and that's cool. Um, we're probably going to talk about a few more examples that are similar to that uh, in a few minutes. 
But I do want to kind of bring up really quickly uh, a more boring but still interesting and worthwhile um, uh, perspective from the left on Francis. Um, so we have these Reformation types of conversations, but there's also a, a lot of other um, commentators, philosophers, political theorists on the left who will use St. Francis uh, as a way to demonstrate like the, the ways that the Reformation fails. Uh, that's a that's a big talking point. So he is a reformer, but also uh, they, there's others that kind of paint him as like a, an opiate of the masses kind of uh, moment where the Catholic Church subverts and subsumes Francis' initial mission with regards to poverty and so on. So in the book, The Mirror of Production by Jean Baudrillard, who is a, a very wild French philosopher, um, he uh, goes out of his way to talk about the ways that St. Francis was like you know, whatever, uh, invested in this, like, uh, this, this life of voluntary poverty, but was used by the Catholic Church, sort of like a chess piece in the larger scheme of, like, inter-church politics at the moment, um, with regards to reforms. So, man, we don't have to get into the, the medieval history of it all, but, like, at the, at the time, like, in Italy and, like, a lot of other places in continental Europe, um, there were these movements, uh, th these other kind of competing mendicant movements uh, that were not that different than Francis in a lot of ways, uh, but that were more critical of the church and more critical of the hierarchy, um, but still embraced the type of poverty that, that Francis did. So, for example, there's a, thing, there's a, a group called the Waldesians who were, you know, doing some similar things, but, but more critical of, of the, the church hierarchy. So... Uh, Baudrillard and some of the other less commentators like Gramsci and um, a few others too, but we don't need to name them all. They they talk about St. Francis as a, in a way that like he's um, – not that St. Francis himself is a failure, but that that uh, St. Francis's reform ultimately fails and it's like kind of gobbled up by – the church itself and used as uh, as a way to sort of sidestep some of the other, um, I guess, more militantly reformist uh, <laughs> types of movements that were happening at the time as well. So um, you have these like maybe some some of these very positive ways of thinking about Francis as a reformer, but then you have some of these other ways that are more like pessimistic about the reforms. Yeah. Uh, these two two different strains I think are important, but the W. E. B. Du Bois one is great because it's uh, it's focusing on sort of the positive out of that and, and giving you something to hold on to um, morally speaking, rather than uh, in terms of like very inside baseball church history or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean you get something like that in Kautsky as well, um, but cashed out a bit differently. Where Francis is a radical figure. But he's also a naive figure, and in the end, when Francis sets up the order, the Franciscan order, kind of against his will, the order ends up betraying the radicality of Francis's vision itself because it becomes institutionalized, and there's all kinds of complicated things in between, but the, the, the radical communism that Francis tries to introduce into the church is metabolized by the church and, and pacified over time. Um, although Kautsky does mention that there is a kind of like, especially with the opening of the third order Franciscans, the secular Franciscans, there's like a, um, an affirmation that working people sort of belong in the movement, which is kind of interesting. So there's a lot of contradictions happening in there, but, uh, it's, 
you know, it, he's a tragic figure on the left, maybe because people on the left, understandably, or, or maybe unsurprisingly, you know, it's hard for them to envision a world where like the church surviving is still a good progressive thing, <laughs> you know, which I can kind of understand, but maybe don't <laughs> fully ascribe to. But anyway, there's something there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, before the episode, uh, Dean, you had sent me this piece from the New Yorker, which is called Rich Man, Poor Man, The Radical Visions of St. Francis by Joan Acasella, which is a, a pretty old book review uh, at this point from 2013. Uh, but it's really interesting. It's, uh, it's about Francis in these sort of different capacities. But there's uh, a few interesting biographical moments in it that I actually really like. Um, there's one that is just like describing Francis's, uh, you know, overall characteristic. And it says he was a courteous, genial, extroverted person. He was fun, a quality not always found in saints. And he laid it upon the brothers as a duty to be cheerful. Um, this is why, to Gramsci's annoyance, he couldn't hate anyone. Because uh, one of uh, another <laughs> right. of Gramsci's critiques is that uh, he uh, he's not radical enough. He's you know he's not uh, he's not hating the rich enough for for Gramsci's taste. But I do like the idea that there's all of these um, you know there, these like high-minded uh, s- some postmodern some just Marxist philosophers who are really weighing in on like what Saint Francis is worth. At the end of the day, if they actually met Saint Francis, he would not give a shit about any of this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> he is uh they're talking to the birds instead of uh, reading any of these guys books <laughs> he is he has a, a real capacity for i like the word fun uh specifically actually okay i have a story i was gonna save till we talk about a different philosophy later but maybe this is the time to do it um so it also in the little flowers of saint francis which you can just read everywhere on the internet by the way it's an old book um there are all these stories of Francis and the gang and they're going around doing whatever it is they do, doing, doing a lot of medieval jackass kind of stuff, which is great. Um, just really getting in trouble. And I wanted to read one kind of short story about a guy named brother Juniper. One of my favorite characters in it. Uh, brother Juniper is the guy who's constantly just, I don't know, <laughs> causing, causing a scene. So, uh, the title of this, uh, anecdote, I'm going to read it is how brother Juniper in order to be despised played a seesaw. Uh, <laughs> so here's a great medieval story. As Brother Juniper was once entering Rome, the fame of his sanctity led many of the devout Romans to go out to meet him, but he, as soon as he saw this number of people coming, took it into his head to turn their devotion into sport and ridicule. (laughs) So catching sight of two children who were playing at seesaw upon two pieces of wood, he moved one of them from his place, and mounting on the plank in his stead, he began to seesaw with the other. Meanwhile, the people came up and marveled much at Brother Juniper seesawing. Nevertheless, they saluted him with great devotion and waited till he should have finished his play to accompany him honorably to the convent. Brother Juniper took little heed of their salutation, reverence, or patient waiting, but gave his whole attention to his seesaw. And when they had waited thus for a long time, they began to grow tired and to say, What folly is this? Some few who knew his ways were moved to still greater devotion, but at last they all departed, leaving Brother Juniper on the seesaw. While they were gone, Brother Juniper remained full of consolation because he saw in that in what contempt they held him. Then he came down from his seesaw and entering Rome with all meekness and humility, came to the convent of the Friars Minor. So uh, this is a great just uh, example of how bizarre these people are. Like Brother Juniper's whole thing is like, oh, all these people, they're really pumped to see me. I don't like that. So he just takes a kid off a seesaw and seesaws on it so long that people hate him. And he's like, yep, 
that that's the whole point anyway see you later uh so that's the franciscan movement kind of moment yeah exactly exactly um get that guy on uh, medieval reality tv for sure um a real (laughs) kind of eric andre uh, tom green he's out there uh but you know it's the the point is not just to be a silly story i think there's a kind of like you know radical rejection of sort of worldly accolades in that narrative but it's told in such a way that also embraces like childishness and and there's something kind of anarchic or anti-capitalist about that spirit as well yeah totally i mean i think that's a big uh a big theme you'll see in a lot of sort of like franciscan type stuff though right is uh you have to reject reject those like the worldly accolades and uh find ways to humble yourself i mean that's like some it's like some situationist stuff for sure though right you got to create a moment where you're gonna make all these people mad and subvert their expectations and make them think about the world differently it's great love it um Speaking of some situations, let's talk about two other postmodern and pretty weird political theorists um, associated with like the um, they're I mean for sure like like socialist politics and communist politics, but they come out of this sort of different tradition of like Italian autonomy autonomism. Um, so Antonio Negri is a guy that you might have heard of before. He is an Italian uh, Marxist who was really active politically in the 70s. And he was like a, a professor of philosophy, but also like, I mean, active in, in the movement. Um, Antonio Negri, he was even imprisoned because uh, the Italian state thought that he was in league with the people who uh, kidnapped a uh, Italian politician named Aldo Moro, but he didn't have anything to do with it and was innocent. But that didn't stop the Italian state from arresting him. Unfortunately, <laughs> he um, actually anyways, was uh, he was barred from coming to Canada because of that. Yeah, that's right. I'm wild. I mean, because he, they they got him on like sort of terrorism charges yeah. because of the association. Some bonkers stuff. Um, anyways, later in his life, now he's a, he's, uh, he can't go to Canada, but he is still a pretty famous, uh, <laughs> Marxist philosopher. Uh, he's probably most well known for writing a trilogy of books with, uh, this guy named Michael Hart, who is like a, he's like a literary, uh, a literary theory kind of guy, but it's also pretty engaged with politics. Um, they wrote three books. Um, one of them is called Empire. One of them is called Multitude, and one of them is called Commonwealth. And that's me remembering all three of these books' books names right off the dome. (laughs) Can't believe it. (laughs) This is what I get for going to grad school. I do remember these three books that I read kind of a lot. Um, Anyways, in the book, uh, the three three books, um, there's a whole culture industry around people critiquing them within academia. And, like, in the early 2000s, these were the books to be reading if you were interested in socialist stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably, actually, like, really defining, I think, actually, for the political thought of, like, the Occupy movement. Totally. Um, Sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. Uh, They're interesting books, for sure. I, I like them. I think they're really interesting. Uh, but they are not without considerable problems. Uh, anyways, in the second book in the series, Multitude, um, they are they're trying to define a revolutionary subject that is uh, more expansive than like the idea of the proletariat. And um, I was thinking a little bit about this book, kind of in preparation, and it is like eye rollingly early two thousands. <laughs> it's just like it's a little bit unserious to think about it now. But anyways, um, they have this this uh, a, a, a chapter a, a chapter. They have a paragraph in it about Francis. The and last paragraph of the whole book, even. 
That's right. The last paragraph of the whole book is about St. Francis, and it's interesting. It, um, what I like about these books is there's definitely some good rhetoric, and this is one of those moments of like really strong, really strong rhetoric. A great way to end the book. So I'll read it here, and we'll talk about it. Hart and Negri write, There is an ancient legend that might serve to illuminate the future life of communist militancy, that of St. Francis of Assisi. Consider his work. To now... To denounce the poverty of the multitude, he adopted that common condition and discovered there the ontological power of a new society. The communist militant does the same, identifying the common condition of the multitude, its enormous wealth. Francis, in opposition to nascent capitalism, refused every instrumental discipline and in opposition to the mortification of the flesh, in poverty and in the constitute order, he posed a joyous life including all of being and nature, the animals, sister moon, brother sun, the birds of the field, the poor and exploited humans, together against the will of power and corruption. Once again, in post-modernity, we find ourselves in Francis's situation, posing against the misery of power, the joy of being. This is a revolution that no power will control, because biopower and communism, cooperation and revolution, remain together in love, simplicity, and also innocence. This is the irrepressible lightness and joy of being communist. Incredible. <laughs> Some good stuff in there. I, I, like I said, good rhetoric for sure. Um, but I think in this particular moment, you see highlighted, again, that like strong association of Francis as a reformist type of character. But I think, like, I mean, Hart and Negri would probably say a revolutionary type of character, right? This is a, a, a reform, not just of, like, the... Uh, not just like a political economy, but a type of reform of the way that you see the world and the way that you think of yourself ontologically, uh, not just as a human set apart from nature, but as a human who is uh, integrally connected to animals, you know, the galaxy, <laughs> space, the sun, the moon, and like all of the people, right? So there's a real like, uh, in, in this way that uh, in this way that Hart and Negri are using it, Francis is like a communist in the Kotsky kind of way, but also there's a bigger picture going on behind the scenes here where um, the entire sort of position of Francis in the world is, is important and is communist in, in and of itself. Uh, not just like the acts, not just uh, the ideas or the acts around poverty and property, but the whole comportment of Francis toward like all of creation is communist in Hart and Negri's um, idea. Yeah, I think there is something to that. I mean, <laughs> Hart and Negri, wild people to have a lot of mixed feelings about for sure, but like you said, they know how to write a <laughs> sentence, definitely. And I think they're right about this specific point, that St. Francis does represent a kind of joyous affirmation of life, which is hard to come by in a world that is so bad and so violent. And there is a resonance there with what communism ought to be. And that is one thing that I do think the autonomous tradition has right and that Hart and Negri have right, which is that communism doesn't have to be a tradition of just like being a huge bummer at parties, right? Like <laughs> it's not about sort of thinking about the most negative uh, interpretation of the world that you can conjure up and, you know, whatever, smoking too many cigarettes and just like hoping for the best, which I think is what communism can amount to it's a it's a maybe putting it this way like it's not about sort of cultivating the how to blow up a pipeline effect you know the uh the sort of um 
dour gray sky type of aesthetic uh there's something sort of about affirmation uh that's involved um affirming you know every single being that exists and trying to say that we have some common destiny and throwing in with that and and being willing to have a good time being willing to get on that seesaw and not get off um there's something about (laughs) that 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 feels really really communist to me yeah i think so all right, Dean. It's your turn. It's your turn to give us a weird postmodern philosopher and yeah. uh, tell us about his approach to Francis. It's a good segue here because I want to talk about uh, Francis from kind of a, an oblique angle here. Um, I want to talk about Peter Sloterdijk, a guy who's not really a leftist but had a moment in his life where he was almost a leftist um, with this great book <laughs> called uh, "Critique of Cynical Reason." Uh, a book that meant a lot to me at a certain time, and it's really fascinating. Uh, in the book, Peter Sloterdijk, he's a German philosopher. He This is like his first big book. He's trying to engage kind of a similar problem to what we were just talking about. Basically, he's a German guy. He knows all these German critical theorists, and he's like, whoa, have you ever read Adorno? What a huge bummer. Uh, don't want to live in that world. That sucks. Um, it makes you sad. It makes it hard to really get anything done. <laughs> it's like not very fun. And also, um, everybody under capitalism is living in a, a cynical kind of life, which is to say, you know that everything is bad, but you also kind of know that there's nothing you can do about it. And so the best consolation prize you can have is sort of just like knowing better, like knowing that you're getting screwed over, like you're going to get screwed over either way, but you might as well know how it's happening. And Sloterdijk says that's sort of the position that the left has found itself in. They have these great critiques. They can bum you out like nobody else. um, But there's really no way of kind of, you know, delivering on them. Um, And uh, Sloterdijk's trying to see that as like a real problem and also a problem that has potentially fascist uh, outcomes. He does like a whole study of uh, Weimar German literature to suggest that cynicism was like a big part of uh, the rise of fascism in Germany. And guess what? I think he's right about that. And then sadly, I think that's also uh, kind of what's going on in the world today. So it's important for that reason. But uh, what do you do in such a cynical situation? Sloterdijk says that uh, there is a way of appealing to what he calls a, a more ancient form of cynicism which he spells with a K instead of a C. Um, that's how you know it's real. Uh, it has a, a, a Greek a Greek consonant in front of it. Um, so he goes back to this ancient tradition in Diogenes, a cynical philosopher in, Greek, in Greece. Uh, so it was like a school of thought called the cynics. And ancient cynicism is not like cynicism today. The idea was that it was a, a kind of skeptical philosophy because Diogenes famously did not like Plato very much and would make all kinds of very funny jokes at Plato's expense. Uh, For example, like, there's a story where Plato said uh, he defined a human being as, like, a a bipedal animal or something like that, and um, (laughs) a bipedal animal without feathers or whatever, and so Diogenes brought, like, a plucked chicken to the, uh, the gymnasium, and he's like, look, Plato thinks this is a guy. What a dumb, <laughs> what a dumb philosopher. Um, so anyway, uh, lots of great jokes. But the point is that ancient cynicism is this kind of embodied way of being in the world that doesn't really get too caught up in, you know, getting lost in the forms or the kind of abstract philosophies that you saw in Greece. Instead, it's kind of willing to like see through the lies of power and embrace its own like inner power. Like Diogenes is is kind of at home with himself. And Sloterdijk also says that Jesus is a, a kind of ancient cynical character. So I want to read a little passage 
that he asked about uh, about Jesus, and I think it's also instructive for uh, St. Francis. So here's what he has to say. Alexander, the uh, emperor of Greece, whose hunger for power drove him to the borders of India, found his master in an outwardly insignificant, indeed a down-and-out philosopher. Uh, there's a famous story, if you don't know, of Alexander, um, this big emperor. He's, like, standing in front of Diogenes and... Um, you know, they have this exchange and Diogenes famously says to Alexander, uh, get out of my son, because <laughs> he's like, just trying to get a great tan, I guess. Um, so, you know, he tells the the emperor off. So Diod- Alexander met his match in this down and out philosopher. In reality, life is not to be found with the activists or the mentality of security. Here, the Alexander anecdote comes close to Jesus's simile about the birds in the heavens who neither sow nor harvest yet live as the freest creature under God's heaven. Diogenes and Jesus are united in their irony directed at social labor that exceeds the necessary measure and merely serves to extend power. What for Jesus was taught by the birds was for Diogenes taught by a mouse. It becomes a model for self-sufficiency. And uh, he goes on sort of to like say all this stuff about how there's this sort of ancient wisdom and cynicism, which is like, no matter what power sort of does or says to you, you can always sort of find something beyond power's grasp and that becomes sort of like a testament to your ability to resist and the thing you don't get in slaughter lake is any kind of appeal to like a you know an organized movement capable of confronting it it's it's all a bit new agey mm. like at the end of the day you sort of you know you embrace your your inner cosmic self or whatever and that sort of gives you an empowered feeling but uh what i think he's totally right about is that there is this um you know, this embodied irony, this sort of pointing toward the birds of the, the air, the, the lilies of the field, that's where you find a moment of resistance to empire. And you see that with someone like St. Francis. And he points to the Franciscans in this book as carrying through that cynical impulse in the medieval period. So they get it from Jesus, but they also get it from Francis. And the key is that there is this uh, this way of kind of you know, refusing whatever the empire wants you to think, but not in a way that makes you cynical, but rather in a way that makes you sort of affirm your own bodily reality and and kind of work from there. And I think that's really like, importantly, a healing moment in a, a world of brutality, right? Like, when you turn on TV, and Fox News is there, and Tucker Carlson's on TV, and off TV, and everything else, like, it can kind of drive you insane. And I think there's something about just sort of like, getting into that Franciscan spirit of joy and affirmation and being like, well, that's not all there is. And that's sort of a, an anchor point from which you can maybe get enough, you know, strength to like go to that dang union meeting or whatever <laughs> that you don't want to go to because like nothing matters. Right. It's a good way of breaking through that cynical shell. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, and uh, a good, a good layout of that entire book. Uh, you won me over. I'm not a cynic anymore. I'm, get, <laughs> I'm getting past it. <laughs> to to be to be joyful to go to a meeting and be happy about it and uh, think <laughs> that maybe you could win it's a great feeling yeah you know uh, I think there's just something in general about like trying to to be the person at the rally who's willing to like say something really loud when nobody else is saying it because like you just want to you know have a good time and like allow yourself to not be bowled over by how uh, how much of a, a bad situation you've all found yourself in by protesting some pipeline or like, you know, uh, the refusal of the government to raise minimum wage or whatever. Like you still got to find your, your voice. You got to like speak from the diaphragm. You know, that's a, a Franciscan kind of energy. It's true. And if you think that you can't change anything, that's all over or whatever, you've already lost. I mean, whatever. Exactly. Um, 
or if you're, you know, you're always expecting the worst or you, you know, you chastise other people for thinking that trying is even silly. Um, you've definitely lost. Right. <sighs> Great. Um, I'm trying to think of a good segue to fit this one in and I can't really think of a good one. So I'm just going <laughs> to, this is, this is the bad segue that we're doing now. Um, so far we've talked about a lot of people who are, you know, leftists or continental philosophers, if nothing else. Um, but now we're going to talk to somebody who is not really a leftist, uh, but is not really a, on the right either. He's not a centrist. A, a complicated political thinker, for sure. Um, <laughs> just a guy writing books. He is just a guy writing books. That's true. Okay, so there's this guy that you need to know about. His name is Willem Flusser. <laughs> so he is he is like he is uh, a philosopher of the media, I think is maybe how you'd... To like tax taxonomize it like academically mm-hmm. um he is czech and brazilian um and uh he spent most of his life in brazil uh most of his books are written in portuguese and then translated into german and then maybe translated into english um <laughs> and he is like i don't know i think like i think in my in my experience the guy that thinks the most interesting thoughts on the planet about media and technology and maybe everything else in between. He's super fascinating um, as a guy and uh, has been a big part of my academic and intellectual development for sure. Um, but also completely like not like a systematic thinker, really hard to nail down sometimes. Um, he has a lot of very radical thoughts and um, that's cool, but also very complicated at the same time. Uh, he, it took him like a long time to kind of even get into, he, so he was a professor of communication in, in Brazil, but like it took him a long time to get there. Cause he's like kind of an autodidact, like in the very weirdest ways, he doesn't have like a lot of, uh, academic, um, degrees or anything like that. He like worked in like a computer repair shop for like a long time in Brazil. It's just like, you know, all these things stacked on top of each other, but he's like this extremely, extremely like, brilliant thinker. Um, and uh, he has something interesting to say about St. Francis. But uh, before we get there, Dean, what's your experience with Flusser? Because I want to endorse him as heavily as I possibly can. Flusser, yeah, he is the best guy you've never heard of. Um, and uh, everything he said is right. He also has uh, some really fun approaches to philosophical writing that are really rewarding. Like when you read an essay by Flusser, I find you have to read it very slowly. But uh, it's like really fun to do uh he kind of leads you down a lot of paths he makes you think stuff you'd never think he has this great essay for example here's like a great one that i uh a great philosophical point that i keep in my back pocket for when someone says like tell me something interesting about philosophy um villain flusser has this good cool point where he has an essay on uh, it's on language and digital culture and basically says words what are they even guess what they're just little pictures right uh letters they're little (laughs) images that people drew at one point and uh, we decided to sort of call them words we became literate people and for a long time we've had literate societies right uh reading societies and uh and that that's a wild thing but now there's this new kind of irony with uh, digital media where people write all kinds of code and they use language to build images in this weird reversal. So there's this kind of primacy of the image, then you get into the word, and now we're having this kind of primacy of the image again. And Flisser is like, what a weird thing that now we live in a world that is just like inundated with images. This is before like smartphones and stuff. 
and uh you know how what what will that do to like our psychology to sort of move away from being a, a more literate based society to being a more image-based society and uh, man it's a great thing that will keep you thinking all afternoon um but the best thing that Flisser ever wrote is a thing that I want you to introduce, Matt. <laughs> but I'll uh, give the the very beginning pitch. Um, it's a great book called The Vampira Tutus Infernalis, uh, The Vampire Squid from Hell. And it is the coolest book of philosophy that you can read this summer. A lot of summer recommendations here in May. So, Matt, uh, what's this great vampire squid book about? Right. So the book is called Vampire Tutus Infernalis. And... To say it's a book about vampire squids isn't quite right. It's sort of about vampire squids, and it's also sort of like the most existential philosophy you'll ever get. (laughs) What does it mean to be a human? What would it mean to experience the world in a fundamentally different way, phenomenologically speaking, um, is the question that Willem Flisser asks in this book. Uh, it's, It's hard. Okay, the book is cool, and it has a lot of things to say about vampire squids and how they interact with the world. A real animal, by the way. Yeah, a real animal that lives in the uh, the the night zone. I think is what it's called, the <laughs> ocean, where there's very little light and very little oxygen. Um, and I, the thing that's hard about it though is that I don't know how much of it is actually true in like the real biological sense. The book is kind of like a uh, if someone learned a little bit about <laughs> about an animal, um, but then then just kind of wrote a book that's sort of like a parable about that animal, maybe. Um, Anyways, so in that book, uh, Willem Flusser, he draws out this distinction uh, between a Darwinian approach to uh, biology and um, philosophy, I guess, and a Franciscan approach. Um, And this is what he says. Darwin developed this rationalization of instincts to perfection and may be considered to be politically on the right. St. Francis conversed with birds, degenerate men. I'll I'll explain the vocab in a minute. (laughs) St. Francis conversed with birds, degenerate men, and not with salamanders, imperfect men. He overcame instinct with his spirit and love and may be considered to be politically on the left. This fable shall follow the Franciscan example and seek to overcome anthropocentrism during its contemplation of life's current. Okay, so (laughs) uh, the degenerate men, uh, that's when Flisser says that, he's talking about creatures that are following an evolutionary path that trends towards humanity. And when he talks about uh, imperfect men, he's talking about uh, the evolutionary path that trends away from humanity. So uh, birds are in the in the big phylogenetic tree, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> are closer to people than salamanders are. Uh, he has this whole thing in the book about like, um, like, why do you think bugs are gross? And he thinks it's because they're uh they they trend evolutionarily away from humanity and like the further something is away from your like spot in the big evolutionary tree of life the grosser you're gonna find it so like um you know bugs they're yucky snails they're yucky uh like an octopus it could be yucky if you like you know touched it or whatever it's because it's not like you fundamentally it's like so different than your your evolutionary perspective that it's like you know, grotesque to you to your way of life. But anyways, um, 
in in this like in this way of looking at biology there is something kind of franciscan about it because it's recognizing the things that are closest to you have uh, a particular like you know connection to you and things that are further away have less of one yeah i do really like that basic point as well though that the uh saint francis has a left-wing vision because he's willing to embrace even that gross stuff right the bugs are your siblings too that's a that's leftist philosophy right the the dregs of humanity and also of, of all creation that's the kind of thing that you have to sort of make yourself common with i mean that's what you see in the heart and Negri reflection as well right that francis is willing to take on whatever is common and that is a, a radical position as opposed to the Darwinian hierarchy of like being willing to crush a creature because it's too far away from you biologically or something to, to have solidarity with it. And I think there's something also really true about that, that Francis does offer this vision of creation where everybody is a sibling. And that is kind of a leftist aspiration that we want to live in harmony with the earth. We want to sort of be plugged into the earth as part of its uh, metabolic processes instead of interrupting those those processes by whatever it is, whatever it is we're doing for our own gain. Um, I think it's great. Uh, we promise Flusser is great. And guess what? Here you go. A really cool insight on St. Francis in a book about vampire squids. You'll literally never read anything like it in your entire life. So. <laughs> That's right. You should get this book about vampire squids. It's it's worth your time. If you like reading, it's definitely worth your time. If you don't like reading, then you've done enough already. If you don't like reading, <laughs> there's actually one edition that does have a bunch of... There's two editions out there, and there's one of them that has a bunch of sketches of vampire squids at the back, so you can just have that one. That's true. That's a good one. Yeah, um, there's uh, the one that's from Minnesota Press is the one that's like, it's uh, translated from German. And then there's one from this very bizarre press called Atropos Press that's translated from the Portuguese. <laughs> and personally, I like Portuguese better, but they're both good. So it's fine. Who cares? <laughs> All right. Um, I've got one more very funny take, and then we'll kind of wrap this conversation. But I think we're, I mean, you're already seeing some good trends kind of emerging here. Um, so... Another another leftist uh, that comes out of Italy, interestingly enough, and has a big uh, a big history with the autonomia movement there, the autonomous Marxist movement in Italy, is this guy named Franco Berardi. Uh, he has written a lot of very cool books. Uh, if you want a recommendation from him about him, uh, there's a book called The Soul at Work that you should read, and it's about um, what happens to your soul when you're working. And I got to tell you, it's not very good. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, Berardi is a really interesting thinker. He has a lot to do with uh, Felix Cotari, uh, who is a French postmodern kind of thinker and uh, has a lot to say about, uh, well, that's it. He's a, <laughs> that's all I want to say about him. That's fine. Um, anyways, in, uh, but, but Berardi, he's still alive and he's also like very in, uh, in like sort of the art, world and more like uh avant-garde and conceptual types of art um you'll often see him writing for uh, a magazine an online magazine called eflux which is like a a leftist ish like art magazine anyways this is from 2015 so it's dated but i think it's such a funny story that does have something to do with francis uh that i think is worth talking about so this is from um an article um called Petition to Pope Francis for the Final Abolition of Hell. Uh, the article is like this. In 1998, the Argentinian artist Leon Ferrari sent a petition addressed to God's representative on earth, the Pope, the Roman Apostolic Catholic Church, John Paul II, 
asking him to abolish hell, a place of endless torture and suffering to which the majority of mankind is condemned. The Holy See and the Vatican refused to accept the petition, arguing that it was unable to abolish it, that it was unable to abolish hell. The place of eternal suffering is eternal and therefore will continue to exist. <laughs> okay, let me. Uh, I'm, there's more to the story, but I want to stop there for one second. So Leon Ferrari, he's an Argentinian artist, and uh, he has a lot of art that revolves around uh, critiques of the state and critiques of the church. Those are his two big things. He has um, a actually I'm, just by way of example, like one amazing piece. I think it's probably his most famous one, where it's like, um, it's like Jesus being crucified on a fighter jet. And it was yeah. a critique of uh, the Vietnam War. I think that's probably the only thing I've ever seen from him, but it is very cool. Yeah, um, that's the that's the famous one. It, it's called uh, Western and Christian Civilization. Uh, it's a six and a half foot tall uh, plastic model of Jesus being crucified on a fighter jet. Um, definitely the most striking. He does also lots of like painting and etching that's um I think more conceptual and uh, maybe not as exciting as a 6 foot tall Jesus on a fighter jet. But, <laughs> <laughs> but like when you've done when you've already done the 6 foot tall Jesus on a fighter jet, it's hard to top that, you know. It's, it's like true, he yeah. did that and then it's like what else can you do in your career? <laughs> okay. I, well, I guess what you could do is you could is you could try to convince Pope John Paul II <laughs> to abolish hell. Pretty up there, honestly. Okay. So um, he uh, step one he he tries to send a petition to the Vatican to abolish hell and uh, the Vatican says sorry we can't do that. Uh, the story goes on in December two thousand one while financial demons ran rampant in Argentina Ferrari wrote a second letter to Pope John Paul II repeating his plea again without any success unfortunately Catholic sadism would not bend <laughs> eternal torture would continue to be practiced in this covert place called hell. And also in the hidden layers of social unconsciousness, fueling terror and violence. In 2013, Leon Ferrari was getting ready to take his final leave from, from earthly life when Mario Bergoglio, Archbishop of Buenos Aires, also known as Pope Francis, um, <laughs> and the artist's friend slash enemy, was elevated to Peter's throne under the name Francis. Uh, I love that. Uh, I love that they are friends slash enemies. I think that's great. Uh, just before taking his final breath, the great Argentinian artist asked for a glass of good red wine and drank a toast to Bergoglio. Um, was the miracle finally about to happen? The article asks. At the end of his first Stations of the Cross, Pope Francis declared that God did not condemn anybody, and also spoke other words that seemed to imply that hell, about which is uh, about which so much has been said, did not exist. That's putting it pretty strongly, but fine. A ferocious debate was unleashed in the global mediascape, a truly infernal place. I love this article. It's so good. Between those who interpreted the Pope's words as the end of eternal torment and those who argued that the words of the Supreme Pontiff were simply metaphorical and that eternal torment could not be doubted. Okay, it, it, it ends like this. We, citizens of the world, ask Pope Francis to clarify this crucial point, and more precisely, we pray for the final abolition of hell, that place of barbarism, a mental source of hate and violence. Let's now remind ourselves of Francis of Assisi's Leticia when he found himself close to sister death, and hope that all men and women of the world can be freed from facing up to death with the same spirit. Further still, we ask Pope Francis to help us eradicate the earthly hell of financial capitalism, and of the war, which is an everyday experience for billions of beings, indigenous people, workers, the poor, unemployed, victims of war, and clerical colonialism. 
So in 2014, 2015, um, Franco Berardi, along with this like uh, particular like artistic collective, they launched <laughs> petition to Pope Francis.org, uh, which is no longer functioning. But they were they started the online petition to to build support. Uh, to get Pope Francis to abolish hell, um, which is so funny on so many levels. But I think this is interesting. So there's a connection to St. Francis in this, which I think makes sense, right? Um, that there's a there's a type of, uh, I, I mean, I'm, Francis was a Catholic and like an Orthodox one, right? Um, but there's a, a type of comportment towards the world that St. Francis has that is sort of like runs counter to the extremely dour and like <laughs> uncertain existence of hell that, uh, that you get with somebody like John Paul II or something. Mm-hmm. But also I think the whole, the whole exercise is actually extremely Franciscan in, in the way like that this could definitely be a story in the little flowers of St. Francis book. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like something silly that you're going to do. Um, that is definitely going to like, I don't know. It's, it's silly. It's goofy. It's like, people are expecting you, a very smart artist, a very smart, like social theorist to say something really important. And instead you're going to spend a lot of time, uh, making a petition to get the, uh, Vatican to abolish the whole idea of hell, (laughs) which is great. Um, a very cool idea altogether. I think it's very fun. Yeah, I agree. So there you have it, a little bit of a a haphazard history of how St. Francis has been brought up in some left and philosophical conversations of the 20th and 21st century. Um, You know, Francis is a wild guy. Uh, I think on our last episode, the way we concluded it was by saying that whether or not people think Francis and the Franciscan movement sort of betrayed the radicalism at the heart of it. The fact that Francis is a part of the church, a saint in the church, and so on, means that that kind of uh, vision is never lost within the church. It can always be maybe reactivated. And I think it's cool to see how it comes about um, outside the the church as well. I don't know, Matt, what's maybe the most like <laughs> the most interesting sort of uh, way that Francis seems to keep speaking through like the the late 20th century and 21st century for for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the general observations with regards to like Francis as a type of reformer are, is really cool, and I and and to see that like any time the left needs like an interesting and joyful reformer, um, that's that's the go to. It's very cool. Um, I think though the part missing from a lot of these conversations of people on the left is Francis's ecological uh, connections. Mm-hmm. I mean, except for Flusser, who I, who completely gets that for different reasons. Um, but uh, you'll see that more in liberation theologians like Leonardo Boff. But man, I think that that's like the that's the part they're all missing. That's the part they're sleeping on. The uh, the ways that Francis uh, rejects a, a hard type of anthropocentrism in uh, in his whole life is uh really important and mm-hmm. i think worth more consideration from people on the left yeah that's good um you know it kind of reminds me at the end here like uh, alistair mcintyre the catholic philosopher who was a marxist and an aristotelian and then a thomist he uh famously ends one of his books after virtue by saying we need a, a different saint benedict that saint benedict is kind of the the person we need for our time and i think uh i think he's wrong about that i think what we really need is another saint francis uh, to get us out of this mess heart and negri are right <laughs> maybe not about everything but definitely about that and uh i thought maybe i'd close with a uh another story of this great brother jupiter <laughs> jupiter this great brother juniper uh one of the coolest franciscans um how does that sound matt sounds great all right
So the title of this one is How Brother Juniper Gave All That He Had to the Poor for the Love of God. And it goes like this. Brother Juniper was so full of pity and compassion for the poor that when he saw anyone poor or naked, he immediately took off his tunic or the hood of his cloak and gave it to him. The guardian therefore laid an obedience upon him not to give away his tunic or any part of his habit. A few days afterwards, a poor half-naked man asked an alms of Brother Juniper for the love of God, who answered him with great compassion. I have nothing which I could give thee but my tunic, and my superior has laid me under obedience not to give it, nor any part of my habit to anyone. But, if thou take it off my back, I will not resist thee. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He did not speak to a deaf man, for the beggar forthwith stripped him of his tunic and went off with it. When Brother Juniper returned home and was asked what had become of his tunic, he replied, a good man took it off my back and went away with it. And as the virtue of compassion increased in him, he was not contented with giving his tunic, but would give books, clocks, or whatever he could lay his hands on to the poor. For this reason, the brethren took care to leave nothing in the common rooms of the convent, because Brother Juniper gave away everything for the love of God and to the glory of his name. So that's the energy that we really need to get going right now. Uh, (laughs) Give away your clothes, and if someone tells you not to, be like, hey, why don't you just... uh, take this <laughs> you can you can take it and have it and uh you know just just give everything away and uh, i think that's gonna really get us out of this mess i think so too seems like a good place to start <laughs> thanks for listening to the magnificast if you like what you heard you can support us on patreon at patreon.com slash the magnificast if you go and support us there you get an invite to our cool discord channel where we talk about all kinds of great things and uh it's it's fun it's a great community to be a part of also if you subscribe to our patreon you can get access to our behind the paywall podcast the magnificast lock-in where we do silly goofy stuff and also talk about current events and it's also pretty fun it comes out once a month and you should listen to it but you can only do that if you give us a little bit of your money okay our intro music is by Mario armstrong our outro music is by the logical spoon and we'll see you next week Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord.